Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the second in our series of messages that I've entitled to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel in the first century. Uh, Our title of our study today is The Witness in Jerusalem. And that's based on Jesus' marching orders in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, in which He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses. And then He mentions three specific areas. He says, First, you'll be My witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria. He put those together. And then to the ends of the earth, uh, the NIV states it. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take up the first of those uh, sections, uh, and that is the witness in Jerusalem. Let me just uh, remind you of something that we talked about last week, and that is that about 25% of the text in the book of Acts is, uh, is speeches or sermons. And so it might be helpful to just get sort of an overview of this section that has to do with the witness in Jerusalem. So let me just take a couple of three minutes to uh, to do that. In chapter two, we're going to see the events on the day of Pentecost. There's a there's a, a special sign that took place. Remember, the Jews were always seeking after a sign, so God gives them a sign, and then they ask for an explanation. What does this mean? And Peter's going to give them the explanation, and then will challenge them with the gospel. In chapter three, there is the healing of a congenitally lame man, which is another sign, and uh, they ask for an explanation again, and another challenge is uh, is issued by Peter to believe the gospel. In chapter four. We will see the arrest of Peter and John. They were interrogated. They defended themselves. They were warned by the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council of the Jews, to cease and desist. And yet they were determined to go on and speak boldly in the name of the Lord and declare the gospel. Also in chapter 4 and, verse, and chapter 5, there are some facts that we learn about the life in the early church. Um, uh, that's where we're introduced to a person named Barnabas whose name means son of encouragement and what he was a man from Cyprus and what a generous man that he was and uh, it is uh, and his generosity is contrasted with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira who uh, sold some property and acted as if they were giving the entire proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to help out those who couldn't help themselves. And uh, their hypocrisy was dealt with... uh, uh, very dramatically by the Lord. Also in chapter 5, there, there are other miracles and there's the re-arrest of Peter. Uh, we see the hatred of the Sadducees in particular for the disciples. And the uh, uh, apostles were beaten and released and again warned not to, uh, not to speak anymore in the name of the Lord Jesus. In chapter 6, there's a selection of deacons for practical needs. Um, there was a there was a controversy that had arisen because uh, you've got uh, the Greek speaking uh, Jews and the Hebrew speaking Jews, the the widows that is, who were Greek speaking, and the widows who were. Hebrew speaking uh, began to be at odds with one another because uh, it it appeared at least on the surface that the Hebrew widows were sort of getting a leg up as it were uh, on being cared for and so that was one of the reasons that deacons were appointed to take care of that so that the apostles could continue to teach and to preach and to pray and to do the things that they needed to do and then in chapter 6 and 7 and I'm not sure we'll get to this but uh, is the longest speech in uh, in the book of Acts, and that uh, has to do with the martyrdom of Stephen. And it's really the beginning of very serious persecution. At the same time, God used this to scatter the church 
uh, into Judea and Samaria, which we'll, uh, we'll be talking about in our next study, uh, where the witness to Judea and Samaria begins to take place. Uh, it's, I guess you could say that it's, it's kind of like the old adage that birds of a feather flock together, and we're sort of, uh, we're a bit more comfortable when we're around people who think like we do and like the things that we do. We're just, it's a, it's a real comfort zone for some of us. I've, I've, I've one fellow referred to it, uh, in, uh, in Christian circles as a holy huddle, that we enjoy being with, with people who think and believe the way we do, and that's understandable. And yet the Great Commission is to take the gospel everywhere. And so when that was not happening or there seemed to be some reluctance on the part of some of the early believers, and remember at the very start all of the believers were Jewish. And um, as a result of that, God turns up the heat and then you get expansion. Um, and it goes into the, as I said, to Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. But we'll look at that as we uh, as we have uh, opportunity. So there are four major themes that are in this uh, in this section: the the theme of Pentecost. Uh, we're going to look at that in just a moment, and then the theme of preaching, because that's that's the whole focus of the series, is to look particularly at uh, at these sermons and speeches that are made, and how the gospel is communicated, and how the uh, the the speakers at the time seem to relate to their uh, to their audience, uh, because sometimes they were talking to a Jewish audience, sometimes to a Gentile audience, sometimes to a mixture of audiences, and perhaps this. Can be helpful for us. Uh, obviously, uh, God really used uh, these uh, men and women in this first century to accomplish His purposes, and there's some things that we can learn as well. A uh, third theme is that of persecution. And uh, persecution is going to take uh, several forms. The old uh, the old enemy comes in when things start going well. Then the enemy uh, makes attacks on the church, and there is uh, there's persecution against the preaching that takes place. Then there is corruption that enters the enters uh, or attempts to enter the church. That's through Ananias and Sapphira and that hypocrisy. Uh, and then there is also a distraction uh, as well that is a problem, and that was the distraction of the widows. So you can see that the attacks of the enemy took a lot of different forms. Uh, anything to distract, anything to uh, get the focus off the gospel is what the old enemy is going to do. And uh, finally, there uh, another theme is that of provision, and that has to do with the social implications of the gospel. That is, if we genuinely are changed uh, and we have new hearts and God has written His law in our minds and in our hearts, it will make a difference in our actions. It will make a difference in the way that you and I relate to one another. And certainly that, uh, that's evident uh, in the way that they took care of widows in that, uh, in that early day. So let's look at uh, the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Now you, I think um, you'll recall that I emailed you a... Uh, those uh, those who were on the email list, I emailed you a list, uh, a chart of Jewish feasts and other sacred times, and the idea was in particular to look at the Jewish feasts that are covered in Leviticus 23. Uh, there were three of those feasts uh, that were in which males, all adult males, were required to appear in Jerusalem. Uh, Pentecost was one of those feasts. There were the feast of unleavened bread which followed uh, the day of Passover was was another. And then, of course, there was the uh, the uh, Feast of Sukkot or booze or tabernacles. And this is this is one of those times. So the, the reason I mention that specifically is because of the requirement for adult males to appear in Jerusalem at these three feasts. And Pentecost is one of those feasts. And remember the word Pentecost has to do with 50, 50 days. Is fifty days after after Passover. Uh, <clears throat> then what you've got, uh, what we're talking about here, uh, when we talk about Pentecost, we need to remember that there is just going to be. 
tens of thousands of pilgrims who are from all over the place who have uh, gathered uh, Jews who have gathered there in Jerusalem to uh, for this feast of Pentecost. So you want to keep that in mind. That I mean, this is this is like uh, Christmas shopping on the 23rd of December out at the mall. It's just wall to wall people everywhere. Everybody's there for this special occasion. All right, the 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 time is around AD 30. This is uh, this is uh, shortly after um, Jesus had been crucified, uh, resurrected, and uh, and has ascended just ten days prior to this. And remember that uh, Jesus told them to hang around in Jerusalem because the tendency was to just go on back home and then uh, you know maybe show up again later. But uh, no, he said you stay here, stay here, and the the Spirit of God is going to come, and you're going to get you're going to have power, you're going to be given power to witness. So let's uh, let's just read, and we'll uh, uh, perhaps I'll make a few comments as we go along. Uh, it says, uh, when the day of Pentecost arrived, and uh, in the Greek language, uh, the, the terminology is when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. Just like Passover, Passover, the first of the uh, feasts, the, the Lord's Feast in Leviticus 23, was fulfilled when Jesus died on Passover. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was fulfilled uh, in the life of Jesus, that that is that he was uh, he had the, you remember they they couldn't eat bread that had leaven in it, uh, and uh, leaven is always a picture of sin, and so here you've got uh, Jesus who was a sinless person, and then you've got uh, the, you've got the. Uh, here the, the the feast of Pentecost, and so it says when the day of Pentecost arrived, they and that's the 120, uh, they were all together in one place. Uh, the old King James version says they were uh, they were all in one place in one accord. And I remember the first time I read that, I thought, how could you get 120 people in a Honda? But of course, that doesn't have anything to do with that. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. The word wind in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament can also be translated spirit. Uh, the word in the Old Testament is the word ruach. And it's uh, it means wind or spirit or breath, and likewise in the New Testament the word is pneuma. We get our word pneumatic tire. What is a pneumatic tire? It's a tire that has air in it, and so uh, pneuma means uh, can be translated spirit or breath or wind. So it says there was a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of, not literal tongues, but as of, uh, not, not literal fire, but as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The word tongues, there's the word dialectos. We get our word dialect from that. Uh, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's the miraculous sign. It's the day of Pentecost. This this Pentecost has been celebrated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, you know, if you were a Jew and you were there in Jerusalem, your mom and dad had celebrated Pentecost, your grandmother and grandfather, your great-grandmother and great-grandfather, as far back as you could go. I mean, this was just traditional. And everybody, it, it was just always the same. It just always the same. But this time, something was different. This time, there's something audible that, uh, that happens. There's this rushing mighty wind and then there was something visible and uh, and it was the uh, it was these tongues as a fire that sort of distributed themselves and on each of these 120 people and they were men and women incidentally and all of a sudden they began to speak in other languages now these are Galileans uh, that this happened to and these were not known as the most educated people in the in the world. 
Uh, it says, now there were dwelling in... Now, incidentally, let's, let's pause here for just a minute. Um, there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, there, there's a reference to tongues, uh, speaking in tongues. This is a different situation. Uh, and the reason it's different is this. In, the, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the tongues that are spoken of there are, uh, are said to uh, be spoken to, uh, to God uh, in chapter 14, verses 2 and 9. And those things were unintelligible to the speaker. They were also unintelligible to the people who heard them. And it required an interpreter in order to understand what was being said. In this case, uh, it's it's different because if you go on to say, you know, notice what it says, verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now that doesn't mean they were from the United States. The United States obviously didn't exist at that time. But they, we're talking about the known world. And why were they there? They were there because of the requirement of Leviticus twenty-three. They had to be there for Pentecost. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So in this instance, this case of tongues, it's, it was unknown to the speaker, to one of these, to the 120 who were speaking, apparently in various dialects. But, uh, it was not unknown to the hearer because it goes on to say um, in the uh, in the text you know what does this mean we we hear them singing and we hear them praising god in our own language in our own dialect uh, so here this these tongues were understood by uh, human beings uh, there were there was no interpreter that was necessary uh, and yet the the tongues that are talked about in uh, in Paul Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, are unintelligible to humans, and you, if you want to know what is being said, it requires an interpreter. And incident, one other, one other difference, I suppose, would be this, and that is that uh, the tongues here in Acts chapter 2 is a sign to the Jews. Remember, the Jews are always wanting to sign. What sign will you give us that you who you really say you are? They would say to Jesus, well, I'm not going to give you any sign except the sign of, uh, of Jonah. You know, just as, uh, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. And I mean, that just went right over their head. They didn't. They didn't grasp that, but it was. But they were always looking for a sign, and this was a sign to them. Uh, and yet, in um, in First Corinthians, uh, in that letter. Um, Paul specifically writes in chapter 14, verse 4, that the purpose of, um, of the tongues is to build up oneself. Uh, whereas in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, the purpose was to communicate praise and to be a sign to these Jews so that uh, it would get their attention and it would give an opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel. And he preached the gospel in the normal language of that day. He didn't, uh, he didn't preach in tongues. Let's go on and keep reading. But Peter, beginning at verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, uh, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And then notice the next phrase, as you yourselves know. Say, so look, this was not done. What Jesus did, Jesus of Nazareth did, was not done in some corner somewhere. Almost all of you are familiar with with what if you didn't actually see him, you've heard about the things that he did, and it wasn't that long ago. We're talking about a couple of months ago when he was uh, when he was crucified, and uh, and why did they crucify him? And that that brings up all this uh, all this other stuff. So he so. And he uses three terms here. He says he was attested to you by God with, first of all, mighty works. That's manifested power. What did Jesus do? He went around healing people, people who had been lame from birth. 
I mean, you, and you can imagine how their muscles would be atrophied and just all of a sudden they were standing up jumping around. Uh, not only were they healed, but uh, they had complete muscle tone. That, that, was, a, uh, that was power being manifested. It, he also refers to it as wonders. A, a wonder is something that makes an impression on somebody. It, it, it has to do with, with the impact that it has on me. When, when I see this power manifested, it creates a sense of wonder and amazement in the viewer. And then he refers to it as signs. Well, what's the purpose of a sign? A sign is to is to give you information. A sign is to point you somewhere. And of course, this sign was to point to God. That was the that was the whole purpose. Verse twenty three. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now. Now remember, we said that the gospel is made up essentially of two components. That is, that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The, the proof of the first is that He was buried. You don't bury people who aren't, uh, who aren't dead. Uh, I, I guess unless you're doing an Edgar Allan Poe novel. And then secondly, uh, the... the the proof that he was raised was that for the next 40 days he appeared to uh, to individuals, he appeared to small groups, he appeared to as many as 500 people at one time. So, And of course, none of them were expecting to see him because they all thought that he was dead and gone. So this was not a hallucination because they, there was no expectation that they were going to see him. So he says, you know, this, this is a sign in, in that respect. And he says, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death there's the second component resurrection because it was not possible for him to be held by it and then in verse 36 he says let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him that is this Jesus whom they had crucified made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified and now look at the result it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now what does that mean? Well, he's talking about conviction here. So remember, uh, one of the purposes uh, of the Holy Spirit is to, is to convict of sin. Jesus talked about that in the upper room the night before He was crucified when He, when he talked to His disciples. It's better for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the Spirit, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit, the the one called alongside, the parakletos, he will not come to you. It's to your advantage that I go away because he, he, that way he will come. And uh, what will he do? He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they don't believe in me. And so here it says they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. What does repent mean? It means to change your mind. But if you genuinely change your mind about something, what happens to your actions? They change too. Well, change my mind about what? Change my mind about who, what I think about Jesus. That He was not some deluded blasphemer. That He was indeed the Son of God and is indeed the Son of God. That He did, that the death that He died was not for something that He did. He was not a blasphemer, but His death was a substitutionary, sacrificial death for sinners. And that indeed He did change my mind, change my mind about the resurrection. That, oh, I would say, no, that's, that is not possible. I, you know, I believe that there's going to be a resurrection one of these days uh, when when the world ends. But no, 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 no. I changed my mind. I say, hey, Jesus did rise from the dead, and that was God's testament that this Jesus is indeed Lord and Messiah. He is the Christ. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Now the word for um, can just as well be translated on account of. So let's, let's read it that way as well. There are some groups who will take this verse 
And we'll say, we'll build a doctrine and say, well, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be baptized in order to be saved. And uh, as we're going to see in comparing Scripture with Scripture uh, over these next weeks as we, as we look at the book of Acts, the, uh, the, the bottom line is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Am I saying baptism isn't important? Not at all. Baptism is important. We should be baptized. But when we're baptized, that doesn't make us any more saved than we were before we were baptized. If you're not trusting in Jesus and you're baptized, you go into the you go into the baptismal pool as a as a dry sinner and you come out as a wet sinner. But if you are trusting in Jesus when you go into the baptismal pool, you go in as a dry believer and when you come out you come out as a wet believer. But the the big thing about baptism and it is an ordinance of the church is that it's an open identification, a public identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a it's a uh, it's an announcement that essentially that you are making that you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for the salvation of your soul. So Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ on account of the forgiveness of your sins. Because Christ has forgiven you for your sins. That's why you ought to be baptized. Identify with Him. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're going to get the same Holy Spirit that we have. Now there's no evidence that Luke gives us that when these people believed that they had this experience of speaking in tongues just like the 120 from Galilee did. But there are other instances in the Scripture and we're going to, we're going to talk about those when when this uh, when this did happen, it says uh, so. Though verse forty one says so, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. There, I guess. Well, I guess I guess it'd be worth just talking about it a little bit right now. There are three specific occasions in the book of Acts where this phenomena occurs, uh, this phenomena of speaking in tongues. The first is here, obviously, in uh, in Acts chapter 2 that we've been talking about. Uh, it happened on the day of Pentecost. Obviously, there were Jews present because this was a Jewish event and Jewish males were required to be there in the, uh, in the, first, uh, in the first place. Uh, uh, the second time we see this in the book of Acts, uh, with specifically with this um, with this uh, event occurring is uh, at Cornelius' home in Acts chapter ten, and again, what we see there is we see the um, the presence of Jews. Uh, Again, this is a sign, and remember Cornelius. Well, maybe you don't remember, but Cornelius was a was a Roman centurion. He was a Gentile, and so when you get to Acts chapter ten, and this event occurs with with Cornelius and his family and all those he had invited in. What it was, was it was a testimony to the Jews who were present that these Gentiles had exactly the same thing that the Jews got on the day of Pentecost. It was the same Holy Spirit. They, the Gentiles weren't coming in as second class citizens. That They were coming in on the same ground as Jews. And that was through, uh, through uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The third occasion in the book of Acts when this phenomena occurs is in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus. And what what was happening there were there were 12 Messianic Jews. Uh, Paul was preaching and he, and he ran across these guys and he said, uh, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when, when you believed? That is, when you believed in Jesus. It was a question he was asking and they said, hey, well, we hadn't even heard anything about the Holy Spirit. What's, what's the deal on all of that? Well, he said, well, well, when you were baptized, tell me about your baptism. And they said, well, we were baptized 
baptized with the baptism of John. But what was John's baptism? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. But it was looking forward to the one who would come. So these guys were expecting the Messiah. They didn't realize that the Messiah had already come. And as a result of that, I think this is the occasion in which Paul laid his hands on these 12 guys. And as a result of that, they had this same phenomena of speaking uh, in tongues occur. So again, this is seems to be a sign uh, in the book of Acts. It's a sign to Jewish people that this is all, everybody, uh, whether, you're a, whether you're from Judea, whether you're from Samaria, whether you're from somewhere in the ends of the earth, that we're all getting exactly the same thing. There are no second-class citizens in uh, in God's kingdom. There are no second-class citizens in Christ's church. So that's that's sort of an overview of this, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about this. Uh, in uh, in in more detail as we come up on these uh, these other passages, I will say this: that uh, in the Bible um, there are uh, a couple of terms that probably you need to be familiar with, because uh, one of them is to be baptized by the Spirit, or, ba- or actually baptized with the Spirit of God, uh, and the other is to be filled with the Spirit. And they're they're two entirely different things to be baptized with the spirit um in, in that instance, the, the believer is passive. Um, notice the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. It says, For by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. See, that's, that's what the Spirit of God does. He baptizes us when we trust in Christ Jesus. He baptizes us. He places us into uh, the body of Christ whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. That, so, see, it, it doesn't matter about your ethnic background. It doesn't matter about your socioeconomic situation. It says, and again, notice it's the passive voice. And we were all made to drink of one Spirit. There is no command. Jesus never gave the command to, to seek the Holy Spirit. He said, just go to Jerusalem and just wait. It, it is going to happen. All you need to do is just wait. So there's no, there's no command to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was just simply to, uh, to wait. Uh, and there's obviously no reason to wait now because whenever, uh, whenever God saves us, He places the Spirit of God within us. Uh, in fact, uh, in Romans chapter 8, it says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit residing in you, that means you're not a believer. He's the one who, uh, who regenerates us. He's the one who changes us. He's the one who makes us into a, a new person. But uh, being baptized uh, with the Spirit, uh, in that instance, the believer is identified with Christ. And it is a singular experience. And it happens at the time of our conversion. Now, I know that there are some people some groups who teach that baptism with the Spirit is a second experience of grace. In fact, um, just so I uh, have all the cards on the table, for some seven or eight years I was involved with a charismatic group and I believed that very thing and I taught that. But I came to believe, the more I studied the Scriptures, the more I came to believe that I was in error at the time in teaching that that was a second uh, experience of grace. That the truth is, is that we are baptized with or by or in the Spirit. Whenever we come to know Christ, we're identified with Him. We're we're baptized, we're placed into the body of Christ. Now, well then, what do we do with these other experiences that we've had? Do we just say that they, they, they were not true, they don't count for anything? No, I don't think we do that at all. That's certainly not what I do with mine. But I've had to explain them in a different way way and said this was just some sort of special thing that God did in my life at that time because I needed it. Uh, 
and it was very uh, and it's uh, it was very helpful at the time, and in many ways continues to be uh, continues to be helpful. the the other The other terminology with which you need to be uh, familiar is uh, is a term that was also used in this passage that we just read, where it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, now we know that they were baptized with the Spirit because uh, Jesus uh, had said that was going to happen to them. John the baptizer had said, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer with the with the Holy Spirit. He says, but in this case, it also says they were filled with the Spirit. Now, whereas in being baptized by the Spirit, the believer is passive. That is, it's just something that happens to us. Uh, God causes us to drink of, of one Spirit. God places us into His body. But being filled with the Spirit is a cooperative venture between us and between the believer and and God Himself, the believer is active. The believer is yielding. Uh, in in Ephesians chapter five verse eighteen, Paul says, "Don't get drunk with wine." For that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice he's contrasting don't get drunk with being filled with the Spirit. Well, what do those two things have in common with each other? Well, if you're drunk with wine, you're under the control of wine. He says don't be under the control of wine. Rather, be under the control of the Spirit of God. Be yielding to the Spirit of God. Well, Obviously, these uh, these people that were all gathered there in Jerusalem that day were absolutely amazed uh, at the phenomena that was going on. Uh, they were they were filled with consternation. Um, again, in First Corinthians chapter one verse twenty two, Paul reminds us that Jews require a sign. If Gentiles seek after wisdom, but it's the Jews who want a sign, and that's always been true. You know, think about old. Gideon, when uh, when the Lord was going to use him to to defeat the uh, Midianites, and you know, Gideon said, well, "Man, who am I?" And the Lord said, "No, you you're going you're going to be the judge. You're going to be uh, the deliverer for the Midianites." And essentially. Um, Gideon said, "Well, you need to prove it." Said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay this sheepskin down here, and uh, I want the ground tonight to be have dew all over it, but I want the sheepskin to stay dry." And the next morning, that's the way it was. And instead of believing God, he said, "Well, that, well, that was pretty good, but uh, let's. I, I need just a little bit more proof. I need a little another sign. So uh, tomorrow morning, when I get up, I want the want the ground to be dry all around it, but I want the." Uh, I want the uh, the sheepskin to to be covered in dew, and of course God did that as well. But the Jews were always looking for signs. They get one this time, and of course what uh, what uh, God does is He uses that to capture their attention. And having captured their attention, Peter preaches the gospel, issues the challenge, repent, believe the gospel. And uh, it says, and about 3,000 people were saved that day. Um, uh, in Acts chapter 3, um, beginning at verse 12, this was at, and it was the time of the evening sacrifice, it says, Peter addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Now what had happened was that there was a miraculous event that had, uh, that had taken place. And uh, and so Peter addressed the people. Uh, see again, it's it's a, it's a sign. It was a healing of a of a lame guy. He said, "Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and right." One and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Of course, that's a that's a reference to Barabbas. And you killed the author of life. Notice what an irony there. You killed. You took the life from the author of life. 
whom God raised from the dead. So again, here here's Peter in uh, in Acts chapter three, using the occasion of this miraculous event that takes place, this this healing of the lame guy, and uh, and he uses it as, a, as an opportunity to preach the gospel. He says, "To this we are witnesses. That is that uh, that you killed him and God raised him." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And he goes on to say in verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And once again... There are there are, uh, a number a number of people were saved. Now, if you look at uh, Acts chapter four, this is on the second page of your notes. Uh, I don't think we're going to have time to uh, to get to to talk about Stephen, but that that's pretty explanatory. But we will come back and make reference to Stephen a couple of times in uh, in future studies. Because that's the way we're introduced to uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter four, uh, we see the uh, the apostles uh, still preaching and teaching. Now, remember, all this is going on in in and around Jerusalem. That was the first place to go. Why? Well, we speak the language here. We know the customs. We know the traditions. Uh, some of the folks know us. Uh, this is it's sort of a comfort zone, as it were. But it's not going to stay comf- comfortable. It says, and as they were speaking to the people. The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now notice the Sadducees specifically are are named here. Now the Pharisees didn't care for these folks either, but their their hostility uh, would become evident a little bit later. Right now, the Sadducees are the ones who are upset. Now, why is that? Well, remember that the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, the, the so-called spiritual leaders, was composed of, uh, of two parties, as it were. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the, were the, the conservatives. They were the fundamentalists. They were the ones who believed the Old Testament. Um, they believed in in the resurrection. They believed that angels existed. But the problem with the Pharisees was that they had added a lot of rules and regulations. Uh, and they had made a lot of what God had said, uh, really, according to Jesus, uh, they had made a lot of what God had said in the Old Testament of none effect because of the traditions and the rules and regulations that they had added. On the other hand, you've got this other group of of people, uh, the Sadducees. And remember, uh, Annas and Caiaphas were were high priests. I think they were sort of alternating. And they were the same ones who were in charge uh, just a a couple of months earlier uh, who brought the charges of blasphemy against Jesus. And ultimately, uh, Jesus was executed on that uh, on that basis so uh, the, the, but the Sadducees did not believe in uh, in anything miraculous they, you know they believed that there was a God somewhere they were sort of the deists of their day they believed that there was a God he had started all things up but then he had just sort of taken his hands off wasn't anything there were no angels there wasn't any resurrection from the dead there wasn't any of that kind of stuff and that was the big sticking point for the Sadducees in this particular instance notice they were annoyed because these apostles were proclaiming in Jesus Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. 
But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So notice what's happening. Right here in and around Jerusalem, you've already had 3,000 who were saved. Now that doesn't mean that all those people lived in Jerusalem, because obviously on the day of Pentecost, there were a lot of people there from all over the Roman Empire. And so many of those, after Pentecost was over, they would go back home. In fact, we think that's probably the way the uh, the church at Rome got started because uh, when Paul went there on his first visit, there was already an established church and neither he nor Peter nor any of the other, there's no record that any of the apostles had already been there. But uh, here you've got 5,000 now, and this is, this is after Pentecost. You've got 5,000 and it says specifically men, so this, uh, think of the, the women and the children who probably had come to be saved as well. It says, On the next day the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. They inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Now see, the issue is still this guy who had been lame, who was healed. Because this is what really got the ball rolling. It, it got everybody interested because the Jews like this kind of stuff, this, this, these sign kind of things. It got their attention. And then Peter preached the gospel and God in His mercy saved a bunch of people. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice this time he's filled with the Holy Spirit, but he does not speak in a dialect that he does not understand. He said to them, but he and, and being filled with the Spirit, he speaks boldly. He is uh, ready to proclaim uh, whatever needs to be proclaimed. He said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you well this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone now let me tell you when the heat when, when Peter said that, there is no question at all that every one of these Sadducees recognized that what he was doing was he was citing Psalm 118, verse 22, which is a messianic uh, uh, reference. And then he goes on to say, he says, "...and there is salvation in no one else." For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But you cannot be saved by keeping the law. The law will not say all the law will ultimately do is condemn you. You've got to believe that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures. You've got to believe that Christ was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. Do, do you believe those things? And he says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Some people say, well, you know, we're all kind of going in the same in the same direction. I think it's interesting that there have been there have been uh, uh, citations uh, regarding. Uh, uh, president, former President Carter, and also the former President Bush, the younger Bush, and they were asked, "Well, do 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 you think that uh, that Muslims and Christians are are really are worship in the final analysis are worshiping the same God?" And their answer was, "Yes, that's not true. There's only one way. You you cannot get to God through Muhammad. Allah is not the way." You ever noticed that what what they have on that uh, on all of these buildings uh, where Islam uh, rules and reigns is they have that crescent moon. It's because Allah originally was a, was a moon god among many other gods, and he became uh, for the people of Islam he became the uh, the the main god. And remember, the word Islam means submission. You either submit or you die, one or the other. Uh, 
I'm glad uh, Christianity doesn't uh, work that way. We present the gospel, and uh, and if God's pleased to use that and uh, call people to Himself, that's fine. You and I are responsible to be ambassadors for Christ, to be God's uh, errand boys and errand girls, to to speak the word, to speak the gospel to whoever we meet. But the results belong to God alone. Her no Baptist preacher years ago. I'll never forget it. It was, a, it was one of the first little seminars I went to. I was a very, very young believer, and it was a seminar on how to share your faith, how to be a good witness. And he said this. He said, he said successful witnessing. I thought, nah, that's what I want. I want to be a successful witness. Successful witnessing is sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. I don't have to convince anybody to come to Christ. That's the, that's the work of the Spirit of God. My responsibility is to share the Gospel. And we're going to see this, again, as we work our way through the Gospel, we're going to see how, for, for example, we were talking. I mentioned Cornelius a little bit earlier, that, that Roman centurion. One of the things that we're going to see is that God, God's Spirit was working in the man's life life and an angel appeared to him and told him said you need to send over here to to Joppa and get a guy named Simon Peter to come over here and talk to you we said "Well, well why well because when Simon Peter got there he presented the gospel well wait a minute the spirit of God was already working in this guy's life why didn't the angel just go ahead and tell him about the gospel well see the that's not the responsibility of the angels the gospel has been given to God's people. You and I are responsible to carry the gospel all around the world. We're not responsible for the results, but we are responsible to carry the gospel. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Muhammad can't save you. Buddha can't save you. Uh, only Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, can save you. In Acts chapter uh, in Acts chapter five, uh, let's see. We well, we got a few minutes. We can look at this. It says, uh, and and it's sort of a continuation of what we're talking about here. It says in verse seventeen, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So the Sadducees are having the apostles arrested. So here again, you see the persecution really beginning to uh, get going. Haven't, got to, haven't gotten to Stephen yet, where he's stoned to death. But uh, you see the persecution beginning, and yet God comes to the rescue, this time again in a miraculous kind of way. And then it says... Uh, uh, verse 26, when it was time for them to bring them out of prison uh, to stand before the, the uh, Sanhedrin to give an account, uh, they couldn't find the apostles. They were missing from the prison. And uh, somebody said, hey, I, we saw them down at the temple. They were, uh, they were preaching and teaching down there. So it says in verse 26, Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, that is the apostles, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. Notice, he's talking to a Sadducee, and he's talking about the resurrection. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a uh, on a tree 
God exalted him at his, as his, at his right hand as leader and savior. That's the ascension. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. It's at this point that Gamaliel stands up. Now Gamaliel was the, uh, was sort of the prince of teachers of that day. He was the one everybody uh, sought. In fact, he was, uh, he was one of the instructors for uh, Saul of Tarsus, and we'll, we'll see that later on. But at this point, Gamaliel stands up and says, hey, wait a minute, guys. Say, and, and Gamaliel was a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. He said, remember, you've, you've had these, this, this crazy Egyptian that got up said he was some kind of messianic figure, and uh, what happened to him? That didn't go anywhere. And then there was another guy, and that didn't go anywhere. He said, look, the best thing to do is to leave this thing alone because... It, it, if 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 it if it's if there's nothing to it, then it's not going to go anywhere. Just as it's never gone anywhere before. But if this thing is true, if it is true, then you don't want to be standing in the way of God. It says in verse forty, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Notice they were they were joyful because because they had been beaten, not because they were some sort of. Uh, uh, people who took delight in being abused by other people, but they took delight in being dishonored for the honor of the honor of being dishonored, I guess I should say, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now one other thing is, and I think, yeah, we got about five minutes left. Uh, one other thing, and that is I just want to mention in passing, because we'll, we'll talk about this in more detail later on, uh, the, the whole issue of provision, the social implications of the gospel. Remember there are two great commandments that Jesus was asked about that. The first one was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, that is all your being. And then the second uh, great commandment was to love others as you love yourself. Uh, and so what you see here in this, uh, in the early, uh, community of believers. And incidentally, they were not called Christians at this time. They were called uh, per people of the way. The way. Incidentally, uh, let me just give you a warning. There is a group today called The Way. And it is a cult. It is a... Uh, uh, they say a lot of things that sound like they're Christians, but they're not. And they will lead you down the wrong path. So stay away from a group called The Way. The Way International. But there was a lot of caring among these uh, believers, first century believers. They seemed to really desire and to enjoy each other's company. There were voluntary actions on their part to care for the needy. Remember from your reading that people were actually selling parcels of their land and other things that they owned and they were taking the proceeds and uh, giving them to the apostles so that those proceeds can be distributed to the needy. Uh, that was where the thing with Anna Nice and Sapphira came in, um, and and Peter makes it perfectly clear. Look, it was your land before you sold it. After you sold it, it was your proceeds. Uh, you could have kept part of the proceeds. Uh, the the problem was you were hypocritical when you presented only a part of the proceeds. You were trying to look good in front of everybody else, and you were presenting it as if you were giving all of the proceeds. And of course, what God did was He struck both Ananias and Sapphira fire dead uh, there on the spot. But 
they they were caring for each other, and yet uh, there there was also a process ultimately that was established to ensure that this kind of care was uh, was a high priority, and not only that it was a high priority, but that it was also equitable. Because remember, I mentioned earlier, and you remember from your reading that there was some uh, differences of opinion and some hurt feelings over uh, Hebrew widows and Hellenistic widows who felt like they were not being treated uh, the same way. So there was a group of men who were chosen uh, by the people themselves to uh, to establish a process uh, in order to take care of all of this. And the Bible speaks to that, and it's uh, it's very, very important. Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And then James speaks to that as well in James chapter 2 when he says, and this is from the New International Version, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? And that's the, the question is constructed in such a way that it requires the reader to provide a negative answer. No. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? And again, the required answer to that is, No, it's no good at all. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, Martin Luther, uh, remember the uh, Reformation? Yeah, okay. Uh, Martin Luther just despised the uh, the letter of James because he felt like James was uh, conveying salvation by works, faith plus works. But that's not what uh, James was doing. And uh, maybe maybe before it was all over, um, Martin Luther came to see that, although I've, I've never read that he did. But essentially, Calvin said this, and I, I think this will help clarify it. Calvin said, Faith alone saves... But the faith that saves is never alone. That is, if we've got the genuine article, if God has really granted us faith and repentance and we've come to trust in Christ and we're following after Christ, then our lives are going to change. We're going to have a desire to do good deeds. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 10, it, uh, 8 and 9, most, most Christians know, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, <clears throat> lest any man should boast. But then there's verse 10 that says, For we are God's workmanship. And that word workmanship is the word poema. We are God's poem. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to do. To put works ahead of faith is to put the cart before the horse. But if we put the horse before the cart where it should be, if we have faith, then corresponding works will follow with it. And that's the argument that, uh, that James is making here. The, uh, the first century church was characterized by being a learning fellowship. And are we growing in our competence and our use of the Scriptures? They were also characterized by being a loving fellowship. Do, do we care? Do we show the care that we are supposed to have for those around us, particularly those of the household of faith? They were, the first century church was characterized as a worshiping fellowship. Are we growing in our intimacy with the Lord? And they were a witnessing fellowship as well. Are we regularly sharing our faith? We need to get out of the holy huddle. I know it feels good in the holy huddle because birds of a feather flock together. It just it feels good to be around people that we that think like we do. But it's good to get out. We we need to be salt. We need to be light. The purpose of light is to illuminate the darkness. The 
purpose of salt is to put a little savor where there is no flavor whatsoever. We need to be a witnessing fellowship. What's it going to take for us to be serious about the Great Commission? Well, some of these folks were serious uh, in this, uh, as I mentioned, what we're talking about is the witness in Jerusalem. They were serious about witnessing in and around Jerusalem. But some of them weren't real interested in going beyond that. And uh, so what God did was He used persecution in order to accomplish His purposes of getting them to the next stage. And that's what we'll talk about in our, uh, in our next time together. The fourfold message of Pentecost to an outwardly religious people included two events, the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It included two witnesses, the Old Testament Scriptures and the Apostles' eyewitness accounts. It included two promises, the indwelling Holy Spirit and complete forgiveness from all sin, not just being made ceremonially clean, but being made completely clean right down to the conscience. And the message of Pentecost to an outwardly religious people also included two required responses, repentance toward God and faith in Christ Jesus alone. Have you ever made that commitment? You need to ask yourself that. Is there ever a time? Are you, are you just playing the game? Do you think you're okay because mom and dad and grandma and grandpa all went to this particular church and you've grown up in the church and you know all about Jesus and you can quote the Lord's Prayer and you can quote the, uh, the Apostles' Creed and you know all the right things to say and you can look up verses in the Bible and you can even quote a few verses. But the Sadducees could do that too or do things like that. So could the Pharisees. Text trust in Christ. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Think about it. Have you ever asked Christ to come into your life to forgive you of your sins and to make a new person out of you? And have you? do you realize, do you recognize change in your life? Not because you've turned over a new leaf, but because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Has your life changed? Is your life changing right now? You'll have to answer that question. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.